Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Hello, this is David Hepworth with The Word podcast dedicated to Jack Holtzman, the founder of Electra Records and the man who signed The Doors, Love, The Stooges, The Incredible String Band, Tim Buckley, and a remarkable number of performers who still have passionate followings 40 years later. He started the label in 1950 when he was a 19-year-old university student. He was in London this week to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the label, which is now part of Warner Music, and to talk about a new history of the label, Becoming Electra, by Mick Houghton. Like many of the men who started the original record business, it was an interest in the technology of sound recording as much as music that got him started. It was a combination of the technology that resulted in the long playing record and the opportunity that uh, provided to record all kinds of music that the major labels, which at that time were DECA, RCA, Columbia, and Capitol, weren't, weren't the slightest bit interested in. Yes, I loved the idea of audio engineering, but there was there were no to- toys or tools to play with back then. You couldn't go and buy a, a set. You had to kind of clue it together yourself. You either built a... Uh, there was a company called Heath, and they made kits. Uh, and the Heath kit was a quite remarkable device uh, that showed you how to wire it all together with illustrations, very cleverly done. And you'd build amplifiers and you'd, you'd collect radio catalogs from companies like uh, Allied Radio and Lafayette. And you, you could read between the descriptions. And if you were fairly alert, you could infer how these things work. And then living in New York City, I was able to go down to a place called Cortland Street, alas, replaced by the World Trade Center, which had all kinds of sur- surplus military gear, uh, 
transmitters, and I'm playing with that stuff all the time and building it. And the idea of radio fascinated me and how radio waves were propagated and the equipment of the studio. Uh, but then I also loved music, and when I was at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, I developed an accelerated interest in folk music and uh, an interest for the first time in Baroque music, which later resulted in the beginnings of the Nonsuch. So tell us about the, the opportunities to make records on the long-playing format that you couldn't make before. What kind of things were immediately attractive to people wanting to record on long player? Well, I became very friendly with Peter Goldmark, who led the development team at uh, CBS Labs. And the reason that he wanted to create the LP was that he was a classical music enthusiast, and he was didn't like his Mozart interrupted every five minutes with a disc plopping down very noisily and uh, breaking up the music and breaking up the mood. So he wanted to change that. Uh, but so correct me if I'm wrong, I've just got to check one thing. Did they originally call them albums because they came as albums of a number of 78s? That's classical the, performances? That is why they were called albums, right. yes, because an, an album was more than two 78, either 10-inch or 12-inch, in some kind of album. Yeah, yeah. It, like pages of, of photographs. Uh, so that's probably where they got the name. Right. Uh, but they were... They took on they took on the name itself, and then the single or multiple LP set became albums also. Right, right. So he did, it was done primarily to record classical music, and if you look at most of what came out on the original Columbia Records, it was classical music. Uh, it was perfect for jazz as well. Nobody thought of it for pop or anything that didn't fit those genres. There was a, a, a Spanish gentleman who recorded Spanish zarzuelas, which are like 45-minute continuous operettas with like an intermission between side A and side B. And those were perfect for the LP. Uh, I was not interested in recording singles simply because I did not know how to get a single played and a single required radio. And I had no chance based upon my love of folk music to get anything played on radio except except on maybe the 30 or 40 radio programs which played at odd hours on Sunday mornings on FM radio in America. Uh, so I, I tried an art music album to begin with, which is now something of a collector's delight. What was that, that first uh, record? It was called New Songs by John Gruen, and the cover is in the Becoming Electra. Uh, book. book and make every cover, including every cover I changed, and frequently the reason why I changed it is collected in Mick Houghton's <laughs> Becoming Electra book. Uh, there were two sizes of LPs at the beginning, 12-inch for the longer works, and there were 10-inch, which I thought was wonderful for shorter works, and we could put about 15 to 17 minutes per side, and it was perfect for a program of folk music, where you could infer uh, a very rich sense of the artist because you weren't heard, you didn't hear them doing just a single song. What you heard was their repertoire. And so Gene Ritchie and Frank Warner, who had been a very skilled collector with his wife Anne in the uh, Carolina Mountain, found Tom Dooley 
which he recorded on the third Electra album. And the Kingston Trio picked up on it in some, at some moment, and the early folk boomlet began. So we started with those kinds of things. Very early on, I was into world music. In uh, 1953, EKL5 was... That's the catalogue notes. You remember the catalogue oh, notes? Yes, yes. I used to have to, a friend who worked in the shipping department at Electra, and we see each other years later, and we started down the hall like guys with gun belts, and he'd say, EKL 110, and I'd say, first volume of Valiant. So it went back and forth like that for years. Uh, the Electra tribe is uh, rather widespread, and I'm proud of all of them. So you talk about that one, EKL 5. Go EKL 5. And so what happened was uh, Maya Darren had made some uh, a very a, a wonderful woman who had spent many years in Haiti learning about Vodun rituals and had written a classic book called The Divine Horseman. She had recorded these, these wires. And uh, I was able to soup them up and transfer them to tape and issue them on record. Everybody thought they were high fidelity, but they came from wires. But the music was wonderful. Uh, there's a, for me, there's always been, especially in anything that has African roots, incredible energy. And that's what I'm always attracted I'm, a, I'm attracted to energy and great songs and great singers. And then we did... Uh, we did interpretations by people who knew the language and knew the material of, of Mexican, Turkish, Spanish songs, of Maurice Sendak later to became very, very famous for his writings and illustrations of children's books. His, some of his earliest professional work are on electric covers of six, seven, and eight. <laughs> so you're coming from this very kind of specialist, sort of academic almost, well, I don't know things. that it was ap academic. It, the point of view I came from was what I liked. And I just hope that there were enough people out there with similar tastes that I could pay my $5 a week rent. Can you believe $5 a week in the, on the fifth floor of a dumpy boarding house in Greenwich Village? Not even a boarding house, just house in Greenwich Village. Uh, I had... I could live easily on a hundred dollars a month. Had one meal a day. I'd go to a place called Pam Pam, and eat my quarter pound of beef with a green vegetable, a baked potato that included a drink and dessert. That was it. That's all you needed. That's all I needed because I was spending all of my time in my record shop called uh, the Record Loft, which is and and uh, Electra was run behind there on like a little board over the sink. So were you meeting people, presumably, or coming into the shop to buy things, or mm -hmm. and hearing, just about, hearing about potential artists through that? Well, that didn't, I didn't find potential artists there. Uh, but what I did learn from owning a record shop, which, by the way, just stocked my interest. If you didn't have my interest, don't bother to come in, because it was uh, world music, folk music, and uh, baroque music. So this is, this is the 50s in New York. And that's all you're stocking? That's all I'm stocking. So if I, I come in there and want a Tony Bennett record or a Sound of Music, you haven't got it. We will point you to a record shop about 10 blocks away. Right. Uh, so the first electro artist who, who became well-known, um, in my memory, are largely kind of folkies. Mm -hmm. Judy Collins. Well, Judy Collins like, was later. The first that became... Uh, electro was an enterprise 
that was like salt water taffy. You'd pull it, and you just hope it never broke. That's was, like candy floss. Yes, yeah. uh, and it was. Uh, I'm trying to stay alive, and I am actually borrowing money to stay alive from the people who manufactured the discs and uh, printed the album covers, and I'm paying them every week, but the debt gets larger and larger and larger. Uh, in 1954, I created the Sampler Record because I, I wondered why music did not use its own medium to market itself. If you go to movies, you saw trailers, you saw adverts on television, you heard about upcoming shows on radio, but we weren't using the record as a, as a way of introducing people to new artists. So I said, why can't we do that? And I'll call it a sampler because it was very folky. It was one of those things you recorded and hung up on a wall that said, God bless this happy home. That's where the name sampler came from. Yeah. I never knew that. Yeah. So it wasn't taking a sample of the things. It was based on... Well, the it other. was, it, but it, 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 it had a broad range of meetings, oh, which really? is why I liked it. Okay, very It good. was samples of the catalog, right. and it was a folk sampler, and I just couldn't re resist having a word which had several meanings, all of which supported my purpose. Fair enough. Uh, but I, changes began to come with the addition of Josh White to the catalog. Josh was internationally known. He had been blacklisted, could not get a record contract, and someone told him about this kid in the village, and he came into the store one day. An appointment was made. First, they determined whether I would release. It was McCarthy era, and it was... Um, People were walk, walking on eggshells. It was a dangerous time. Uh, I said, he's a great artist. Why wouldn't I release him? And I don't think he's ever been properly recorded because it came through scratchy 78s. And, uh, they, they were not much to listen to. But when I heard him and I realized the uh, richness of his voice and his incredible skill with the guitar, and you saw the idiosyncratic uh, cigarette lit behind his ear. He was, he was a very magnetic performer, but he was untouchable. But I heard him and I said, I can't offer you much, but what I can do is I can record you properly because you haven't been recorded properly. The sound will be as big as you are, and I'll promise to pay you on every record from record number one. It cost us nothing to make a record in those days. I had all my own equipment. I would set it up in a defrock church someplace. And we'd make the record over two or three days, so the cost was the tape and maybe the rental of the church at $50 a day. So uh, the early electro folk artists were paid from record number one. Right, right. And so he would, get, he would get royalties whenever he needed them, and he made tens of thousands of dollars. Actually, he probably earned close to eighty to $90,000 in royalties over time. In, in those days, a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I'm talking about over time, and his records... Uh, a lot of his material is still in print today yeah. on electric. So he built up this this catalogue of, of folk artists, you know, as we mentioned, Judy Collins and Theodore Bickell was important. Theodore Bickell, go on, tell us about uh, Theodore Bickell was, this is typical about how, how you meet people. There'd be lots of uh, wine and cheese parties in Greenwich Village apartments. And it, whatever anybody listening to this can imagine would be in those apartments, bullfight posters, swing <laughs> chairs, uh, Chianti bottles with with candles drip all over them. And uh, we were at a party and Cynthia Gooding, who was an electro artist, was there, and Gene Ritchie and Oscar Brand. And the guitar goes to Theo, 
uh, cheese and wine, of course. The guitar goes to Theo, and I was knocked out, but I did not know how much of my being knocked out was due to the strength of his presence, which was very strong. He was an actor. He had already appeared in movies like The African Queen and uh, was later to win an Academy Award nomination for his performance in Dutch and the Defiant Ones. Uh, and he was doing Israeli folk material. I thought, wow, we have a large Jewish segment in, in the major cities. So he came on over to the house, and we he made a few, uh, recorded a few songs, and I played them for friends because I saw his performance whenever the music was played, and I wasn't sure whether the strength was coming through to people who had not seen him. And, of course, everybody loved him. And we started a long history, probably did 14 albums together. But his biggest successes were the Israeli folk songs, the Yiddish folk songs, and in 1958, the Russian folk songs. And by 1958, I had this magic three-month period where three Bikel albums had hit, and the samplers, which we continued doing, had hit. And I paid off the ninety thousand dollars in ninety days. So, so you're quite sure you're quite shrewd in spotting niches. If you look through the you know the catalogue there, the, the covers of the albums that are in in McHatton's book. I, it, 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 I wasn't doing thing. it on purpose. Oh right, it was easy. It was you could do an eclectic label back then. I think it's much more difficult today because the people think in terms of brands and genres, and I never did that. And when I was uh, bereft of music. There was no music I could find to record. I'd, I'd use the LP for other things, either a Morse code course for uh, embryo ham operators, and I was one at one time, and I had problems learning code. Uh, Thirteen volumes of sound effects, which were enormously successful. Hundreds of thousands of those albums were sold uh, in the first uh, two to three years, and uh, we were making a dollar and a half on each album and when you multiply that out that was serious money and Electra was financially solid right, right. I remember my accountant after the doors had happened coming in in 1967 and saying you made X number of millions of dollars this year uh, and I, I responded to him that's great now we can take more chances <laughs> uh, it was always about be, being adventuresome, not for the sake of being adventuresome, but simply because you had things you wanted to do, and and it was a, a it was something that occupied me fully. Even when I was asleep, I'd wake up and I had a, a kind of a ballpoint pen with a little light in it, and I'd write down notes and I'd go back to sleep. Uh, I was consumed by making records. I loved the entire process, and you really have to do it if you're going to struggle as long as I. I did before we even broke even. So moving, what were the what were the key um, incidents in you moving from folk to rock? I suppose it was West Coast groups and love and the Doors and so forth. I wrote a book called "Follow the Music" and uh, with Gavin Dawes, and uh, we did a lot of interviews with the artists and the people who worked at Electra. I just was going where the music took my interest. Uh, in the early sixties, we. Uh, we recorded the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. It was our introduction to electric music. We, Paul Rothschild, felt he had problems uh, recording electric music, and uh, it was something that we felt was coming simply because uh, folk was fine, and there were many great folk artists, but the underpinning of electric 
push the thing forward rhythmically. And Butterfield was a perfect thing for us to do. It grew out of uh, the Kerner Rand Glover and Blues Rags and Hollers, and then all of the Kerner Rand Glover records, which were beloved of the Beatles, and uh, it turns out the doors. Uh, so that led to wanting to find a band. And John Sebastian was very close to Elector. He, he played guitar and a mouth harp on a number of albums. And what came of that was The Loving Spoonful. And we made a shake, we shook hands to do The Loving Spoonful. And I had heard You Believe in Magic and had been very, it, it, they were very, very smart about making a master tape out of an audition tape. Because sometimes something happens in the session for an audition tape that you can never recreate later because it's, it's balls to the walls. That's how that was recorded. But it turns out when he signed his publishing agreement, he also signed a recording agreement. And so we didn't get it. And years later, John Sebastian and I met again. Uh, I went to a free concert he gave in the park. And he, and he came running up to me and said, oh, my God, I wish we had signed with Electra. We would have been paid. <laughs> they, uh, he believed he had been not well treated by his, by his label. So not getting the loving spoonful really pissed me off. And New York was being picked over by all the major labels. So I said, screw it. I'm going to go out to California and look. Because I could feel something beginning to happen. I had gone to California in 1962 thinking something might happen. And the only artist I was able to get out of California was Judy Hensky. So it was Wonderful. quite sleepy, wasn't it, California at yeah, that time? California, what happened was that music was created in the East and moved West. Nobody took music uh, uh, music seriously that was created in the West except for soundtracks and contemporary jazz. And there were a number of great contemporary jazz artists out there, and there were contemporary jazz labels, one even named Contemporary. Uh, but I thought that was going to change. And so I started haunting uh, the clubs in, on the West Coast, and I heard a lot of junk. But then one night I... I'd seen, I, I would go through the local underground newspapers because they all had advertisements for the clubs and the bands, and I saw one that said Love. What well, an interesting name for uh, a band. This is um, 1965. Uh, so I went to the club, and there was Arthur Lee and Love wailing away with great looking young girls. And, but quite, it was. It was very different, it was full of energy, and it was pure West Coast. Yeah, I heard a funny thing, somebody said to me, you know that I could be in love with almost everyone, I think that people are the greatest ones. symbiosis between the audience. The audience was as much a part of the performance as Arthur and his band was. I did not realize until somebody said to me months, months later, how did you feel about recording a racially mixed band that was even racially mixed that comes from a liberal upbringing in New York City? Uh, never occurred to me. Uh, and the same never occurred to me about Butterfield either. The same thing was... And besides, uh, 
blues bands frequently had uh, had uh, white artists working with them, and so it, so there was love, and the first love album was was quite successful. And uh, then one night I went to uh, see Love at the Whiskey, and Arthur Lee said to me, "You ought to stay around for the band who who opens for us." And it was the Doors. I, I didn't get the Doors right away. It took me about four nights of going back before I understood what they were about and their the exquisiteness of the architectural line and how they didn't use a bass but were able to get the bass effect uh, m with much more animation from the piano bass that uh, Raymond Zarek played. And the story of the Doors has been told a zillion times and nobody needs to hear it again. But uh, the Doors broke everything open for us. Uh, there is a story that not many people know and that is the story of the singles with the doors. The Word, a magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. Although we had had some hit singles, we had nothing that roared to the top of the charts. So I was concerned that we weren't sufficiently uh, smart about how to do that. And that I didn't want to waste a song like uh, like My Fire and, and have it skip up the charts to number 30 and not make it all the way because singles are calling cards for albums and although we had a rabid and enthusiastic and highly widespread group of radio stations playing the album around the country the single brings it to another audience and so we all agreed that break on through sounded like a single uh, it didn't represent the essence of the album, but it sounded like a single, and we'd start with that and see what kind of attention we got. We supported that by putting up the first billboard on Sunset uh, Boulevard uh, for a rock band. And it said, break on through to an electrifying album, electrifying misspelled, of course, with a K and an A, uh, as one would hope. And we released break on through, and it got into the respectable mid-chart level. Our we had another problem with Light My Fire, and that it was that it was seven minutes long, and it required an edit, and we tried all kinds of edits, and we couldn't get any to work, uh, and the doors were against an edit, and I promised them that unless we came up with an edit they approved, we would just not release it, and we would uh, continue to work FM radio and see what could happen at AM radio. There came a point when circumstances were almost forcing like my fire as a single and I turned to Paul Rothschild who was the extremely skilled producer whom I had assigned uh, to record the doors he was a staff producer and I said Paul if anybody can do it you can do it and he rose to the challenge and then he came back and what he had done was make a single edit he had cut out all of Robbie Krieger's guitar solo well, you can imagine the scream that came from Robbie Krieger. But when everybody calmed down, uh, Jim Morrison turned to the band, and the band agreed, uh, had to agree on everything. Uh, if there was one negative vote, they wouldn't take action, which I thought was very smart. Uh, and Jim turned to Robbie and said, Robbie, if a kid in Minnesota hears this song, this coming out of an AM radio, they've never heard anything like this before. Don't you think they're going to go out and buy the album? Don't you think they'll be curious? Who are these 
kind of crazy people making this kind of a record. Uh, and everybody agreed, and they called me and they should release it, and we released it, and it uh, went to number one on the charts. But it was kind of strange, because it was a rolling number one. By that I mean it had was number one on the West Coast for weeks, that nothing else uh, you, you heard. Uh, and then it fell on the charts, and it was moving up the charts uh, in the Midwest, and it was slowly going up the charts on the East Coast. And so you never had the entire country at number one at one time. But when the person who was in charge of uh, our radio relations came into me on uh, a Friday afternoon in uh, the summer of uh, 1967 and said, the Doors are single is number one on the charts as of Monday in Billboard and Cashbox, and exactly at that moment, not only was I thrilled, but my watch stopped. <laughs> so the next day I went out and bought another one, this time a Rolex at full-list price. It was just a, one age ending, another age beginning. But it was enormously satisfying to finally have a number one. You know that it would be untrue. You know that I would be a liar. If I was to say to you, girl, we could get much higher. Come on, baby, light my fire. Come on, baby, light my fire. Try to set the night on fire. The child who has a It was important to Electra to show that we could make that kind of thing happen. If the material was good enough, you can't push anything up a chart where the material stinks. Uh, people have tried, and I don't know what... And they make up stories, and they make up numbers, and they, they can get some kind of chart position, but it's not real. And the same is true today with the manipulation of social networking sites. I think the public is smart enough to know when they're being had and when it's authentic and when it's not. That's one of the reasons uh, uh, Facebook is interesting, because you have friends and then you have real friends. And they'll listen to the advice of their real friends and not tend as much to listen to the advice of almost friends. But that was an enormously satisfying time, and it made a lot of things possible for Electra. Right. Uh, we got a crack at pretty much everything, because although we weren't a major label and we didn't have major label distribution, we had done it. And we could do it again, because the distributors were, the 32 independent distributors we had in America were rooting for us, uh, but it wasn't a, a cohesive organization that we could manage. I mean, it wasn't our own distribution organization, which is something I thought we desperately needed. Uh, and we were contenders. Right. So not long after that, you started an operation in Britain, didn't you? Uh, we started an operation in Britain before the doors. Oh, okay. Go on. Tell uh, us about that. We had... Uh, I couldn't get anybody to release our records, or they would cherry-pick, and I wanted everything to be available. So I made an arrangement with a gentleman named Don Johnson at a Toon Dean Street in Soho, I think it's Soho. Uh, we had a storefront and a, and a very, very cold basement, and uh, I would ship over the records on consignment, and we would put on the MCPS stamps, and we'd ship them to retailers directly. The advantage of that was twofold. Uh, one was it was the original recording as mastered by us as packaged by us uh, and the other is we can have a much broader uh, selection of recordings and I think uh, Electra came to the attention of, of 
British fans as a result of our doing that, and also as a result of John Peel, who was a major, major electrocrat. Right. So then you start you signed some British-based um, talent, didn't you? We did a few. We did a few uh, odd things, but the one that was uh, the most impressive over time was the Incredible String Band, which was signed by Joe Boyd and produced by Joe Boyd. Uh, we had issued the first record in America to. Uh, a, po- a polite reception. <laughs> uh, people wondered what this band was all about. It was it was another one of the odd tributaries from electro folk, but I loved them. Uh, and then they did the Five Thousand Spirits of the Layers of the Onion with that incredible cover by the Dutch artist collective The Pool, and uh, I had great difficulty in figuring out how I was going to bring that to an audience. I was committed to release it, of course. So I did what I always do. I sit and listen and listen and listen and listen until we come up with it. And what we came up with was how we would work it through colleges, uh, how we would work it through FM radio, and the special um, accent or cachet that we would try to give it, and talk to them about uh, maybe expanding it on stage into a live act with uh, the kinds of... uh, performances you would see on the street, you know, busker performances on the streets of London or in America. Uh, and that seemed to work out pretty well. Aren't they one of those groups who performed at Woodstock but wouldn't let their music be on the soundtrack? And didn't they miss a trick? Uh, I don't know that that's true. I, I have no memory of it. I would have been incensed. <laughs> and, and, and besides, it wasn't their call. It wouldn't have been their call. I would have permitted it. The people who... Uh, who did Woodstock were friends of mine. Uh, Freddie Weintraub, who was one of the producers of the picture, was uh, the owner of the, Bitty, uh, the Bitter End in New York, a, a venue of, uh, of, of some renown. Ted Ashley, who was a friend of mine, was president of the studio. I don't recall that happening. Okay. You signed the Stooges, who seemed like a bit of a departure from um, what you'd done previously, from the folk tradition anyway. How did you come across them? Well, I didn't come across them. Danny Fields came across them. He had convinced me that we, on a telephone, I agreed to sign a group I had never heard. Uh, And I know that's strange, but I said I'd record them. I didn't say I'd release them. And we always had the right of not releasing. Uh, But I was interested uh, in the MC5, which uh, which was the group that got me into all of this, because they were a politically infused uh, group out of uh, Detroit uh, representing the musical uh, portfolio of uh, the White Panther movement and the White Panther movement's platform was sex, drugs, and rock and roll which I thought was just fine and they were the loudest band I ever heard in my life when I finally did get to see them uh, so loud that we had to bring a special truck in from Los Angeles with special equipment so that we could record that band in a gigantic ballroom. It was some scene. And the MC5 said, and we have this mascot band, uh, the Stooges, and there was Iggy and Ron Ashton and those guys, um, and you have to sign them too. So we signed the Stooges too. And without hearing them, again, with the thought that if it doesn't work out, we don't release it. That's the nice thing when you ha- about having your own label. Uh, you, you're not held for account, held to, 
that's the nice thing when you own your own label. You can do what you want to do and nobody holds you to account and you learn. So that's just another. You'll make mistakes, but you'll make interesting mistakes. Uh, so when it came time to record the Stooges, they came into New York and I hadn't done what I usually do with artists, which, which is I know all the material before we go into the studio to make sure we have an album that has cohesion and it has dynamic range, not sonically, but dynamic range in terms of the material itself. Uh, and we got him in this, we got, and I, anyway, I didn't do that, they came in, Iggy was kind of strung out, they couldn't really do much in the studio, so we sent them home and said, look, you're not off the label, but you got to clean up your act. Uh, I hated heroin, I didn't mind soft drugs, but I, I, people strung out on heroin were very, very difficult to deal with, and I had had that uh, situation with one or two other artists. Uh, and they came back and they were cleaned up and they were raring to go and they had some good material but they didn't have enough so I gently casca uh, castigated them and, and sent them to their hotel and said come back tomorrow with new songs in effect I gave them overnight to write 1969 I want to be your dog and the rest of the songs that they recorded the next day I put a lot of pressure on them but it worked right. it worked for them, it worked for us they went into the studio, they did the album very quickly, uh, because this is not a band to do a lot of takes. You wanted, uh, with a band like the Stooges, if you get them to do 30 takes, you're going to kill the band. You want to get, uh, you get want to get it in the first or second, never more than three takes on anything. You can always uh, kind of put it together. In the case of the Stooges, that was difficult, because uh, syntactically the songs were would shift from take to take and so it would take assuming everybody was in tune and at the same tempo we could have done it but it it would have been difficult so they're mostly whole, whole performances uh, then I heard the mix and I was aghast not because the mix was a bad mix it missed, it missed the energy and so we I took the four track tape into a little mix room and playback room we had at Electra in New York. Our studios were in LA, and cranked it all up and said, "That's your mix." <laughs> Just loud, loud, yeah, right. Now, loud and in your face, yeah, which is what the Stooges were. And then uh, it didn't sell a lot of records, but we made another record, and it turned out to be enormously important to have done those records. People remember Electra for a record that probably never would have been able to come out on a major label. In fact, some people in my own company said, look, I know, we know you like the, the odd and interesting, but this is a little too odd and interesting. And one person said, you will ruin your label by issuing this. And I said, I'm issuing it. Right. It was just, at, at that point, they had done everything I had asked them to do. For me not to release that record would have been a criminal. And let the audience make up their minds. It strikes me, looking back, one of the great um, things that, that Electra gave to the record business was an emphasis on packaging. Mm. And, you know, for instance, pretty much all your groups had logos, didn't they? Yes, they did. At a did. time when groups didn't have logos. I wonder why that was. Well, why, that, why was that? Um, there were no... Uh, record stores that would let you play back albums that you hadn't heard. So you had to buy them on faith. Uh, I thought the packaging was very important because I was trying to convey visually what the essence of the record was about. 
one of the things I thought would be helpful that since I was beginning to work with groups we gave them individual identities by virtue of a logo it made t-shirts easier we weren't thinking of merchandising we were thinking more of just spreading the word uh, and it was it was a really good thing to do the band would have a logo and the band would be able to use that logo however they wanted as long as it wasn't on another record label and uh, we did that because it would be attractive when someone instead of just seeing the Stooges in type it meant nothing but when you saw the Stooges with that logo it had impact and the and the function of the album cover was to make impact we also had pioneered another technique which was color printing directly on board so that when people pick up an album and they go to flip to the reverse side they have the double color impact the double impact of the logo today they would call it branding. I never thought of it that way. I, I thought of it as identity, not as a brand, even though those two words are related. And also, uh, Electra main, it kept its logos very big on the covers. By doing the covers ourselves, we could have a consistency of quality and we could make sure the logo was big front and back. Right. So the packaging was hugely important in terms yes. of the, the people's kind of emotional attachment to the music. That's absolutely. And so once you move to a CD, you can't have that. Yeah, when you, instead of 144 square inches of wonder, you have 25 square inches that you can barely read if you have a Superman's vision and a magnifying glass. Right. And then you see all those little logos on the bottom. I'm frequently uh, flummoxed by trying to figure out what label put this thing out. And I have to read the little P and C copyright stuff at the bottom, and I carry a little magnifying glass exactly for that purpose. Right. Now, eventually you sold the company. Why do big record companies buy small record companies? Well, first of all, no big record company bought Electra. In concert, Warner Brothers, Atlantic, and Electra became a the Warner Music Group, which is a large record orga music organization. Um, we came together out of a common need. From Electra's standpoint, we were doing very well, and we proved we could sell a lot of records, which was of real concern to the lawyers and the managers handling the groups. The groups were more concerned about getting the music right. But these guys were concerned about getting the money. Um, and Columbia had a very powerful argument in saying, you should be on Columbia because we have this distribution organization that's been in place for years. We all needed, we all needed that within the Warner, what became the Warner Music Group. Warner Brothers and Atlantic, who were already joined at that time, needed couldn't quite do it by themselves. They needed the extra 20% that throwing Electra and Nunsuch, which was very successful, our classical uh, label, into the pot. And so we put all the companies together to form the Warner Music Group. And my condition for doing that was that we would set up a, a company-owned, truly modern distribution system in the United States. Uh, Columbia had like 15 offices spread around the country, uh, lots of people. We wanted a much leaner organization. We also wanted to make sure that our message 
whatever we were saying about a specific record, was not going to be diluted by 32 independent distributors each telling their own story from their own perspective. We wanted to get one step closer to our eventual customer, who was the record buyer. So it worked well all around, and then we also agreed we would set up international because individually we weren't powerful enough to do it. There was one other overriding attraction for me, two other actually. One was I'd stop making change out of my own pocket. Uh, for instance, when we uh, launched the Third Doors album, Waiting for the Sun, we had a pre-order of 750,000 albums. So I'm pressing up all those records and things, and I'm responsible to the doors. And if those bankrupt, uh, those uh, any one of those distributors went bankrupt, it was going to be uh, a real kick in the wallet to me. Uh, so not making change out of my own pocket anymore and taking something off the table was very attractive. The other thing which was the most attractive was I loved Jerry Wexler and Nessui. Uh, and Amin and I had gone to the same college eight years apart, so I knew the Atlantic family. And Mo Austin and Joe Smith were very, very close personal friends of mine. And so why not play in the same band with my brothers? Mm. And it, what I didn't expect is that by doing this and being and the Warner Music Group being a very important part of Warner Communications, which owned the picture company, the everything Warner Brothers was owned by Warner Communications, that I would get the opportunity to advance my technological skills and interests uh, into a whole new career. Uh, and the career after Electra was as interesting and as much fun for me as Electra itself. So it's back to technology, effectively. Oh, yes, you started absolutely. with technology, you went mad. Well, I started with a combination of technology and a love of music, and what could you do with that in those days? Uh, where there wasn't a lot of establishment there ahead of you, and that was start a record label, which sounded like fun to me. Right. So you're part of that generation that, that built the post-war record business, the names you've mentioned, the Etiquettes and so forth. Um, do you think there'll still be a record business in 30 years' time? I think there'll be a music business. But records as we know them, records as we know them have been deconstructed. There is still a... Uh, a, there is a diminishing album business, uh, and the reasons for that are many. One is I think there has been a disrespect for the uh, erudition and ears of the audience by people just throwing out albums that aren't well thought out. An album is a very interesting construct, and it, it's context and content, and it has some magic attached to it, uh, and making an album is an art. CD sales or album sales are diminishing, but they are in, they are still a very large and respectful part of the uh, recorded music pie, if you wish to call it that. And there are some artists for whom albums are really important because their audience may be more mature and uh, not spending a lot of time with music on computers, although that is changing. So, uh, and if you record, as a Michael Bublé does, for instance, wonderful singer, great presentation, he skews slightly older. Uh, so that makes a lot of sense. Yes, I think there will be a music business, but there will be have many, many different tributaries, some of which we do not know yet. To everything turn 
There is a season, turn, 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 and a time for every purpose under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to reap. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.